So a few weeks ago, I preached a sermon in Colossians 1, 1 through 8, and we saw in that passage that the gospel is the source of our faith, love, and hope. It propels and it compels us to godliness. And after Paul encourages them in that passage, he then moves to praying for them. And that's the passage that we come to this morning in 1, 9 through 14, Paul's prayer for the Colossians. Prayer is something that most Christians struggle with. It's not uncommon to be talking to a Christian and say, hey, how are your quiet times going? And for them to respond, well, time in the Word has been good, but I could be better about prayer. Paul Miller tells a story of someone, a teacher, who asked a group of Christians to describe the gospel. And they spilled forth these beautiful descriptions of our salvation and our atonement and how we were dead in our sins. And now we've been reconciled and we've had Jesus take our place on the cross and make us sons and daughters. And the teacher said, wonderful, that's, you've done a great job describing the doctrine of the gospel, the doctrine of sonship. And the teacher said, now, tell me what it's like to be with your father. What's it like to talk to him? And suddenly, everyone in the room fell quiet. Our prayer life reveals our intimacy with God. That's why J.I. Packer wrote that prayer is the measure of a man, spiritually speaking, in a way nothing else is. Not only does prayer reveal the intimacy we have with God, but it also reveals our dependency on God. About a year ago, we took our family to a giant indoor water park, which I'm convinced is where every known bacteria and virus in the world begins and lives and moves and has its being. And we were about to leave, and our son Jackson started to just have really severe stomach pain. And so uh, it got pretty unbearable to the point where if he moved any other part of his body, his stomach would hurt tremendously. And so we, Kelly and I, we tried to figure out what was the issue. We tried to get him anything that could help make the pain go away. And finally, I just, you know, sat him on my lap so he could sort of lay back and, and relax while Kelly went and grabbed our stuff and tried to figure out how are we going to get out of here, you know, what are we going to do? And as we were doing that, Jackson looked up, me, uh, looked up at me and through considerable pain just managed to get out the words, Dad, can we pray? <coughs> I said, yeah, buddy, of course. And so we prayed. And as I was praying, the pain subsided. And within five minutes, the pain was gone and never came back again. But when he said that, when he asked that question, my first thought was complete and utter conviction. Right, why didn't I pray? Why wasn't that the first thing that I thought to do? So this passage is for me and for anyone else who needs to grow in prayer. This passage tells us why we need prayer, and it tells us what we should pray, and it tells us and shows us that prayer is the tool God uses to drive our sanctification, and that's actually the main point of this sermon. The main point is that prayer is the tool that God uses to drive our sanctification. James 4.2 says, you do not have because you do not ask, and that applies to our sanctification, our growth in Christ as well. And so just to give you an idea where we're going, it's going to be two parts. First part is why we need prayer. Why do we need prayer? Second part is what we should pray. 
And using Paul's prayer in this passage, we're going to look at three things that we should pray. Knowledge, which leads to fruit. We should pray for divine power, which leads to endurance. And then thankfulness, which leads to worship. And you might be thinking, well, what does this prayer have to do with us, right? It was a prayer by Paul for the Colossians almost 2,000 years ago. Well, there's several reasons. One, God's word is God-breathed and is teachable for rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. So we know that it's useful. We know that we can be corrected and trained by it. But also, it's a model for prayer. It teaches us how we should pray for ourselves and for others. It also teaches us what we should care about. Think of the psalmist when he says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. This is a great opportunity to say, okay, Lord, what do you want me to delight in, in my heart? What do you want me to pray for? What should I value? And it helps us reorder our priorities and our hearts for things that God cares about. But also, as Christians, everything that Paul prays for in this passage is also ours in Christ. And so there's just four reasons why this is extremely relevant for us. So let's look at the first point, our need for prayer. Paul begins by saying that since the day that he heard of their faith, the Colossians' faith, he had not ceased to pray for them. Had not ceased to pray for them. Whatever that means, maybe it's not every second, literally, but he was continually praying for them, regularly praying for them. What a convicting statement. In fact, Paul's entire prayer life is extremely convicting for us. Paul was more gifted, I would say, and equipped for the Christian life and ministry than most people in history. And yet, with all Paul's giftedness and sanctification and unique revelations from God, and his incredible sanctification and sacrifices he was willing to make for the gospel, he was still extraordinarily dependent on prayer. He wasn't like one pastor in the 20th century that openly said he no longer prayed because the demands of ministry were too great. He just said, no, I'm not going to spend time praying. There's too many things to do in ministry. I'm going to focus on that. Paul would be aghast at such a statement and such self-reliance. Consider this. In nine out of the 13 books that Paul wrote in the New Testament, he says some version of the phrase, I pray for you always. Nine times out of the 13 books he wrote. For example, Romans 1.8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Or 1 Corinthians 1.4, I give thanks to my God always for you. Ephesians 1.16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Philippians 1.3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. Colossians 1.3, in the passage before this, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 1 Thessalonians 1.2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. 2 Timothy 1.3, I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. Philemon 1.4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. If there was ever a prayer warrior, it was Paul. And Paul also is arguably the most productive Christian for God's kingdom in the history of the church. And those two things are not a coincidence. If you want to be productive for Christ's kingdom, if you want to glorify God, if you want to grow in Christ and see others grow in Christ, if you want to see this room overflowing with friends 
and family members and coworkers and classmates. If you want to see people who are currently drowning in sin emerge from the baptismal to the applause of FBC and to the glory of God, then we must pray, 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 as Paul did. When you look at every major Christian movement in church history, or any uniquely fruitful time period spiritually, behind it usually was an earnest movement of prayer. A.T. Pearson said it this way, Every new Pentecost has had its preparatory period of supplication. God has compelled his saints to seek him at the throne of grace so that every new advance might be so plainly due to his power that even the unbeliever might be constrained to confess, surely this is the finger of God. Take the Reformation, for example. Martin Luther would regularly spend up to three hours a day in prayer. Or more recently, Dawson Trotman, who was the founder of the Navigators, parachurch ministry that was extremely fruitful evangelistically. He decided with a friend to meet every morning at 6 a.m. around a bonfire to pray for people to come to faith. And they specifically prayed for every state in the country. They brought a map and they put their finger on a state and they would pray for people to come to faith from that state. Well, by the time Dawson Trotman died, a person from every state in the country had come to faith sitting in Dawson Trotman's kitchen. There's also many stories of God providing miraculously as a result of prayer. Uh, in the audio, uh, autobiography of Darlene Diebler Rose called Evidence Not Seen, she recounts a story when she was a, a prisoner of war in a Japanese in, uh, prison camp in World War II. And she was in solitary confinement, so she was horribly sick. She was malnourished. When she did get food, it was typically had fleas or maggots in it. And then she saw in the distance a woman holding a bunch of bananas. And she fell to her knees and prayed, Lord, please just give me one banana. She said, I'm, I'm not asking you for even a bunch like that woman had, just one. But then she actually confessed out loud her doubt that even that was possible. Lord, how, how could that even happen? One banana in this setting. Well, one day during roll call, the guards came to check her cell. And she forgot to bow to them in deference. And then she realized and, and she expected the guards to come back in and beat her which was the practice, normal practice. But through extenuating circumstances and a guard that the Lord had actually worked miraculously in, instead the guards opened her door back up and laid at her feet 92 bananas. She actually fell to the ground. She put the bananas in the corner and wept that she didn't trust the Lord could even provide one for her. God loves to provide for his children when they go to him in prayer. And then prayer also has power to allow us to experience greater intimacy and communion with God. Isn't that something that all of us want more of? David Brainerd was a Christian in England who opened an orphanage and helped thousands of kids with an extraordinary man of faith. He would often spend entire days in prayer. And in some of those times, he was overwhelmed with God's love for him. He wrote this in one of his journals. In prayer, God was pleased to pour such ineffable comforts into my soul that I could do nothing for some time but say over and over, Oh, my sweet Savior. Oh, my sweet Savior. My soul never enjoyed 
so much of heaven before. It was the most refined and most spiritual session of communion with God I ever felt. If prayer is powerful enough to help us experience communion with God like that, to provide for our needs, to see people become Christians, how powerful do you think it is in our sanctification, in our growth in Christ? How much of our sanctification do you think is due to the prayers of others? How many times do you think you've been encouraged throughout the day or throughout the week because that day or that week someone was praying for you to be filled with all the fullness of God? I know as a staff and elders, that's something that we pray for each of you regularly. How many times have you been kept faithful because someone was praying that you wouldn't falter? We need prayer. We need prayer because we need God. And prayer is the means of grace that he's provided for him to work in our lives and in the lives of others. So we need prayer. But when we go to prayer, what should we pray? Well, this passage tells us that. And so now, part two, what we should pray. Let's first look at the first thing we should pray that Paul models for us. We should pray for knowledge which leads to fruit. Look at verse 9. Paul asked God that the Colossians may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul wants the Colossians to understand more about God and his will for them. He wants them to be deepened in their theological knowledge. He wants them to become more aware of God's will for every Christian. And we, likewise, should pray for ourselves and for others that we would grow in the knowledge of God's will and the knowledge of his word. And we shouldn't just desire knowledge, right? But we should receive that knowledge in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, Paul tells us. Knowing that God wills something isn't enough. We must, through his spirit, have hearts to receive it and submit to it, and then know how to apply it. That's the wisdom and understanding part. So imagine if you talk with someone, and they read this passage or another, and, and they say, well, we should pray without ceasing. That's God's will. And so they quit their job, and they stop seeing their family and friends. They stop going to church, because all of those things would cause them to cease praying. Well, you would probably come along that, alongside that brother or sister and say, hey, great, you, you understand God's will that we should fervently pray. We should pray without ceasing. But you need some wisdom and understanding to know how to apply God's word. Because God also tells us not to neglect our families. He tells us not to neglect or forsake the assembly, that we should go to church regularly. In fact, for someone to not work, who is able to work, is actually disobeying scripture, because scripture encourages us to do that. To not work when we're able is actually a form of testing God. Because it's like Satan says, throw yourself off this temple and he'll command his angels concerning you. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to test God. So even if God loves us and, ca and cares for us and provides for us, doesn't mean we deliberately test him by quitting our job when we're able to work. Then we're not able to provide ourselves. We're an unnecessary burden on the church. And we're not able to help those who truly are poor, who can't work. And so that's just a, a case study of what it means that we need knowledge of God's will, but we also need wisdom and understanding to know how to apply it rightly. But we also must see the purpose of this spiritual knowledge. We need knowledge. We need it with wisdom and understanding. But what is its purpose? Well, its purpose isn't simply to fill us up and then sit there. 
this knowledge has a purpose, and that is to move us toward godly action. Look at what Paul uh, says in verse 9 and 10. He prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And why? Right? Why should they be filled with knowledge? Well, verse 10 tells us, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. In order to bear fruit, in order to walk in a way that is pleasing to God, we have to know God's will. And we have to have it with wisdom and understanding. But we can't just receive that and not do anything with it. The purpose of it is actually to move us toward godliness. So when you hear being filled with knowledge, don't think like water fills a glass. You can pour water in a glass and then it just sits there and grows stagnant. When you think being filled with knowledge, think of the way a sail is filled with wind. A sail that's filled with wind has to go somewhere. And in the same way, a Christian filled with knowledge of God should move toward godly behavior. They should have to go somewhere with that. One woman said this to her husband who was in seminary at the time. She said, I'd rather you be really kind than really smart. Now, we, can, we, can we can gain all sorts of theological knowledge, all sorts of biblical knowledge. But if it's just puffing us up, if we're not doing anything, if it's not transforming us, if it's not changing us, if we're not allowing it to change us and move toward love toward others, then what's the purpose? So are we growing in kindness as we're growing in knowledge of God's will? Are we growing in godliness as we attend Bible studies? Are we growing in evangelistic faithfulness as we study God's word more and more? We have to be careful as Christians of taking in tons of spiritual and biblical wisdom, but then never doing anything with it. Never being changed by it. Just the knowledge of God changing our life and causing us to walk in a manner that is pleasing to him. Are you, as you're reading scripture and, and attending Bible studies and being poured into, are you turning around and then pouring into others? Are you meeting with others to do spiritual good to them? And looking for an outlet to say, I've been so blessed by this, how can I bless others with it? Or how has this changed my life? If we pursue theolo theological knowledge for its own sake, we'll just grow spiritually obese and unfruitful. And we'll also get puffed up. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. Which one do you want to be? The person who just has knowledge that's puffed up, that's prideful? Or do you want to be the one who knows God and is known by God? That's the person who takes the knowledge of God's will and applies it, who's transformed, who obeys. There are Christians in the world who barely have access to Bibles, let alone the best commentaries and systematic theologies. And yet I would say many of them are more bold with the gospel, are more reliant upon God, are more faith-filled and more loving than many of their brothers and sisters with seminary degrees. Now, this doesn't mean that growing in theological knowledge is antithetical to growing in godliness. Right? Paul even says that as we bear fruit, we will increase in our knowledge of God. And so plumb the depths of Scripture. Read theological books. I'm a huge proponent of that. But it seems for biblical knowledge to have its proper effect, it must be made to affect our hearts and our life. As James said, we must be doers of the word. Being only a hearer 
of the word has greater consequences than just not being fruitful. It actually leads to apathy, to self-righteousness, to pride. And so being just a hearer of the word actually perverts the knowledge of God to be something that it isn't meant to be. As Thomas Watson, Puritan, writes, knowledge without repentance is just a torch to light men's way to hell. So the first thing we should pray for is knowledge that leads to fruit. But Paul then shifts to a different prayer request in verse 11. He asked God to give them divine power, which leads to joy. And that's the second thing that we should pray for. Divine power that leads to joy. Paul prays that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So one theologian said that this prayer teaches us that we are to ask for the ability to discern God's will, but then we are to ask for the power to perform God's will. As Christians, if we just have knowledge of God's will without his power, then we are in a hopeless situation. We can't go forth and just obey all of his will without his power working in us. And thankfully, God gives us that power, we see here in this passage, in abundance if we ask for it. And that's exactly what Paul asked for the Colossians, and that's what we should ask for ourselves and for others. And Paul prays that the Colossians would have endurance. The most important thing in the Christian life is finishing the race, isn't it? Who cares how fast we ran, how courageously we ran, if we don't finish the race? Finishing the race is key. And we are promised that there will be obstacles to finishing this race, friends. Anyone who desires to live a godly life will suffer, will be persecuted. One of the more violent persecutions in church history was in Lyon, in modern-day France, in 177 AD, under the Roman Empire. And in that city, there was a deacon named Sanctus, in that local church. And he was arrested by the local Roman authorities and tortured terribly. And the guards who were performing the torture hoped, in the words of Eusebius, the church historian, they hoped that he would utter something he ought not to. They hoped that the pain, the torture, would cause him to forsake Christ. And yet, as they tortured him and questioned him, he responded to every question in Latin with the answer, I am a Christian. What city are you from? I am a Christian. What's your name? I am a Christian. What's your race? I am a Christian. Then they took Sanctus to the amphitheater where he was beaten and brutalized according to all the crowd's desires. And as Eusebius puts it, not even at this point did the heathen stop, but were still further maddened in their desire to conquer the Christian's endurance. Nevertheless, nothing escaped the lips of Sanctus except that good confession which he had desired to utter from the start. I am a Christian. There may be times where you feel the world all around you is maddened in its desire to conquer your endurance as a Christian. In fact, I know that's the case. And if you haven't felt that, you will at some point. Satan is constantly trying to conquer our endurance. And as one preacher put it, Satan is the most faithful pastor in church history. 
He's never outside of his pulpit. He's never outside of his parish. He is constantly preaching the bad news of the world as opposed to the good news of the gospel. And he's trying to conquer Christians' endurance. So there's persecution. There's the feeling that we're constantly swimming against the current culturally as Christians. There's false religions and other worldviews at odds with Christianity that are preached to us virtually everywhere we go. There's always that temptation to give in to the spirit of the age. But then as Christians, according to this passage and other verses, praise be to God, we feel rising inside us that spirit of God. That same power which raised Christ from the dead rises up inside us and gives strength to our feeble hands and strengthens our weak knees so that we can confess day after day, week after week, until we finish the race, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. We cannot endure without divine power. And thankfully, he gives that to those who ask. But you know, Paul isn't just praying that the Colossians would endure to the end. He's not only concerned that they would finish the race, he's praying that they'd have endurance and patience throughout the race. In this world, we will have trouble. We'll face challenging circumstances and hardships. The old saying is true that you're either in a storm or you're sailing into one. And so in those times, it's so easy to want to give up or to give in to bitterness, to resentment toward God, to coldness toward God, toward others. And so Paul prays for supernatural power and strength, which no circumstance can defeat and no person can defeat, for patience, for endurance, to love others well, even in the midst of trials. And as we pay for endurance, we should pray for this patience, patience in trials. Uh, Kevin Schaub, one of the pastors here, a couple weeks ago preached a great sermon on James 1, where he elaborated on um, trials and temptations. And he pointed out that a trial is an opportunity given to us by God for our sanctification. But it's also an opportunity to sin. And so when we bear trials patiently, we use trials for what God has desi designed them for. And so we conquer in the Christian life. We reap that fruit and that benefit that God designed that trial for in our life. When we have patience, especially in trials. But this Christian patience is different than worldly definitions, I would say, of patience. Because this patience is mixed with joy, Paul tells us. Endurance and patience with joy. We might associate endurance and suffering or patience and trials with a kind of stoicism. Right? We, we, we bear it without complaining, but we aren't particularly happy about it or during it. And this is where Christianity offers something utterly different than any religion or philosophy in the world. Christians, filled with God's immeasurable power, can bear trials not only with endurance, but with joy, with gladness. F.F. Bruce wrote that a stoic in the stocks in prison would have borne the discomfort calmly and uncomplainingly. But would he at the same time have been heard singing hymns to God? as Paul and Silas did in the Philippian town jail? Only the gospel, only Christianity can give us joy in suffering. Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, <clears throat> looks at Psalm 23, a famous psalm, Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he shows that if you take out every reference to God in that psalm, 
and his goodness, what's left is very bleak. All that's left is, I shall hunger. I shall want. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear evil and my enemies. The believer in Christ goes through those same trials. They'll walk through the valley of shadow of death. The difference is, the unbeliever has their eye on the valley. The Christian has their eye on the shepherd. They can take comfort in the hymn, he leadeth me, he leadeth me. With his, with his own hand, he leadeth me. Everyone goes through trials. Christians and non-Christians alike. But it's only Christians that can sing in the midst of them. Because of the gospel. Some have said that they can't believe in God because there's so much suffering. It's interesting that many people have found the exact opposite to be true. They said that because they're suffering in the world, that if God isn't real, if we don't trust in him, then there is no relief or hope from our despair. This happened to one woman who was working for, uh, who was not a Christian, who was working in Germany for an organization that fought against human trafficking. And as she found herself wading through heartbreaking story after heartbreaking story, she found that she was drowning in the sorrow. But then she noticed something different about her Christian coworkers. They were heartbroken, no doubt about it. They were saddened by the sorrows and the suffering that they saw. But they weren't drowning in it the way she was. And it was because they knew that as bad as the suffering was, it wasn't the end of the story. That God was good and whatever his reasons for allowing the suffering, he would one day judge all sin justly. He would make all things right and he would wipe away every tear. And so they had hope and joy mixed with tears as they strove to transform the world around them. And that's the opportunity that we have as Christians. And so this woman realized that only Jesus Christ could give that joy and she trusted in Christ. So as Christians, we have that joy. We should pray with Paul that God would give us joy in the Lord, that our hearts and our minds would be so filled with the blessings and privileges that are ours in Christ that we would run with endurance and patience the race that is set before us and finish the race with joy, with a smile on our face. So we should pray for endurance. But lastly, we should pray for thankfulness that leads to worship. Paul prays that even during trials that they are enduring, they should give thanks to the Father who has qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. It's so easy to forget the incredible privileges and inheritance that we have in Christ that God has given us, isn't it? Sometimes uh, if I find my attitude just isn't the best, I'll just take a moment in prayer and just thank the Lord for things that he's done for me. Truths and realities that are mine as a Christian in the gospel. Sometimes we'll do this as a family. We'll just go around and list things out loud that we're thankful for. And sometimes it doesn't start the best, I'll be honest. You know, it's like thankful for this car, thankful for this chicken nugget, thankful for this chicken nugget. <laughs> but eventually, you know, maybe around eight or nine or ten items that we're thanking, it starts to do a number on your attitude, right? Because you can't remember all the things that we have and that we've been blessed by, especially spiritually in the gospel, and continue to complain makes it significantly harder. And we see in this verse that this kind of thanksgiving should be a regular habit for Christians. And not just in good times. Right? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that we should give thanks to him in all circumstances. 
And then Paul helps us out. He tells us why we should give thanks to the Father. And it's because he's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. That is quite a lot to be thankful for. Before Christ, we walked in the domain of darkness and sin. We spurned his kindness. We've turned our backs on God. We haven't honored him as the creator of the world and our own creator. The one who gave us nothing but good. And we turned our backs on him. So we deserve to be banished forever in the domain of darkness. Blindly groping our way around without hope. But God heard our cries. From heaven he looked down. And he came and he conquered the kingdom of this world. And he captured us and carried us away from sin and destruction to his kingdom. Through his death on the cross in our place in his resurrection. And he has given us a glorious inheritance. As opposed to the inheritance of those in the domain of darkness, which is death and pain and sorrow for eternity, the saints in Christ have a heavenly inheritance in light, the kingdom of Christ. Just consider what all this, what, in, what this glorious inheritance entails. He's forgiven our sins. He separated us as far as the east is from the west from our sins. He's clothed us in the perfect righteousness of Christ. So that when the Father looks at us, he sees the perfect obedience of Jesus. He's reconciled us to the Father. He's filled us with his spirit. He's given us a purpose and a hope and meaning in life. He's poured out his love for us in our hearts. He calls us sons and daughters. He's given us the hope of eternal life. He's preparing a place for us to be with him in heaven forever. He promises to work everything in life for our good. He's guaranteed that we cannot be separated from him or his love. He gives us a church family to love and to be loved by. And he's given us his word to be guided by, to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And he's given us access to him in prayer, endless access, wherever we are, anytime we want, without restriction. I had a friend in high school named Neil, and Neil was high energy. Uh, and I remember one time Neil went to a summer camp, and the first night there were just some really fun activities. And that night at cabin time, before anyone could say anything, Neil just goes, man, I don't know how this week could get any better. <laughs> and people were like, Neil, we're like, we haven't been here for five hours yet. <laughs> but don't you as a Christian desire to say that to an extent? I don't know how our lives as a Christian could get any better. I mean, did you hear all those things in that glorious inheritance? It's ours. That's ours. That's yours as a Christian. And what's more, how could our Savior get any more beautiful, any more praiseworthy? Who is the person that you love to talk to the most? Maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a sibling or a longtime friend. It's probably the person that you can laugh with one minute and then the next minute be talking seriously with. It's undoubtedly a person, though, who loved you, who you know you can trust. Well, how could God have loved us any better? 
how could he prove himself to be any better of a friend? We sinned against him. We stood in the defendant's seat with a 100% sure guilty verdict impending. When Jesus, who was both the judge and the plaintiff, stood up and said, I'll take their place. I will take the suffering. I will take the wrath that they deserve for turning their back on me. And he did. He suffered the scorn. He suffered the mocking. He was made to wear a crown of thorns. Blood and sweat mingled down on our precious Savior's face. For you. For you. And he rose again. He is alive. He sits now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, praying for us. And the answer to every single one of his prayers for us is yes. And he's done all of this so that we can know him. So that we can go to him. In the Garden of Eden, before sin came into the world, it said that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. Doesn't that sound like pure bliss? Jesus died so that we could again walk with God. So that we could know him. I want to see God pour out his spirit on FBC to the degree that we would weep in overwhelming joy at the love of God for us in Christ. I want to see every single one of us grow to be more like him in love and godliness. That we might see countless people come to faith who are currently dead in their sins and lost in the foulest kingdom of darkness without even a star of hope unless God rescues them. And I'm convinced and cannot be persuaded otherwise that none of these things will happen before we as a congregation commit to faithful and dare I say radical prayer. So go to him. Go to him. If you don't consider yourself a Christian, if you haven't trusted him, go to him. Do not delay. He stands ready and willing to embrace you in love. Talk to a Christian here about what it means to follow Christ. And if you already have trusted in him, go to him to deepen your love for him. Go to him to meet your needs. Go to him for your sanctification and the sanctification of others. And go to him on behalf of those who aren't going to him. That they might be rescued and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus went to the cross so that you could go to him. So let's boldly approach the throne of grace, often fervently, that we might see him work in our lives and in the lives of others according to his glorious might. Let's go to him and pray. Father, what an incredibly rich and glorious inheritance that we have in you. What a privilege it is to take everything to God in prayer. And I pray, Lord, that you would please work in us mightily, individually and as a church, that we would go to you 
Father, prayer is the tool that you use to drive our sanctification, that you use, that you use to grow our intimacy with you, that you use to grow and do many mighty works evangelistically among us. And so, Father, help it not, help prayer not gather dust in our Christian lives, Lord. Help us to go to you often, and I pray, God, that you would work mightily according to your glorious might, that you would give us endurance and patience with joy, that you would increase our knowledge of your will according to spiritual wisdom and understanding, Lord. And I pray that you would help us to give thanks to you for transferring us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. We thank you for our redemption. We thank you for our forgiveness. And we thank you that we know you and that we can go to you in prayer. We love you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.